Welcome to Fast Asleep. We hope you've had the opportunity to hear part one of Ernest Hemingway's Big Two-Hearted River from our last episode. Our author is very well known for taking risks. He cheated death five times, and that includes two plane crashes in just two days. So um, if you were hoping for hard drinking or bullfighting or war combat, you won't find it here today. We've brought you Hemingway, the early years. We do have him fresh from 237 pieces of World War I shrapnel, all from one burst of shell fire. That's what he was recovering from when he wrote this and other Nick Adams stories. The autobiographical Nick Adams character appears in 15 others. So, here is Ernest, oh, I mean Nick, (laughs) fresh from war and in need of recovery, looking to soothe his restless mind. Oh, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? soothe his restless mind with a little fishing. Tuck in and recover along with him as we conclude Big Two-Hearted River. In the morning, the sun was up and the tent was starting to get hot. Nick crawled out under the mosquito netting stretched across the mouth of the tent to look at the morning. The grass was wet on his hands as he came out. He held his trousers and his shoes in his hands. The sun was just up over the hill. There was the meadow, the river, and the swamp. There were birch trees in the green of the swamp on the other side of the river. The river was clear and smoothly fast in the early morning. Down about 200 yards were three logs all the way across the stream. They made the water smooth and deep above them. As Nick watched, a mink crossed the river on the logs and went into the swamp. Oh, Nick was excited. He was excited by the early morning and the river. He was really too hurried to eat breakfast, but he knew he must. He built a little fire and put on the coffee pot. While the water was heating in the pot, he took an empty bottle and went down over the edge of the high ground to the meadow. The meadow was wet with dew, and Nick wanted to catch grasshoppers for bait before the sun dried the grass. He found plenty of good grasshoppers, They were at the base of the grass stems. Now, sometimes they clung to a grass stem. Oh, they were cold and wet with dew and could not jump until the sun warmed them. Nick picked them up, taking only the medium-sized brown ones, and put them into the bottle. He turned over a log, and just under the shelter of the edge were several hundred hoppers. It was a grasshopper lodging house. (laughs) 
Nick put about 50 of the medium browns into the bottle. While he was picking up the hoppers, the others warmed in the sun and commenced to hop away. They flew when they hopped. At first, they made one flight and stayed stiff when they landed, as though they were dead. Nick knew that by the time he was through with breakfast, they would be as lively as ever. Without dew in the grass, it would take him all day to catch a bottle full of good grasshoppers, and he would have to crush many of them, slamming at them with his hat. He washed his hands at the stream. He was excited to be near it. And then he walked up to the tent. The hoppers were already jumping stiffly in the grass. In the bottle, warmed by the sun, they were jumping in a mass. Nick put in a pine stick as a cork. It plugged the mouth of the bottle enough so the hoppers could not get out and left plenty of air passage. He had rolled the log back and he knew he could get grasshoppers there every morning. Nick laid the bottle full of jumping grasshoppers against a pine trunk. Rapidly, he mixed some buckwheat flour with water and stirred it smooth. One cup of flour, one cup of water. He put a handful of coffee in the pot and dipped a lump of grease out of a can and slid it sputtering across the hot skillet. On the smoking skillet, he poured smoothly the buckwheat batter. It spread like lava. He poured smoothly and the grease spit sharply around the edges of the buckwheat cake. It began to firm and then brown and then crisp. The surface was bubbling slowly to porousness. Nick pushed under the browned under surface with a fresh pine chip. He shook the skillet sideways and the cake was loose on the surface. I won't try and flop it, he thought. He slid the chip of clean wood all the way under the cake and flopped it over onto its face. It sputtered in the pan. When it was cooked, Nick re-greased the skillet. He used all the batter. It made another big flapjack and one smaller one. Nick ate a big flapjack and a smaller one covered with apple butter. He put apple butter on the third cake, folded it over twice, wrapped it in oiled paper, and put it in his shirt pocket. He put the apple butter jar back in the pack and cut bread for two sandwiches. In the pack, he found a big onion. He sliced it in two and peeled the silky outer skin. Then he cut one half into slices and made onion sandwiches. He wrapped them in oiled paper and buttoned them in the other pocket of his khaki shirt. He turned the skillet upside down on the grill, drank the coffee, sweetened and yellow-brown with the condensed milk in it, and tidied up the camp. It was a nice little camp. Nick took his fly rod out of the leather rod case, jointed it, and shoved the rod case back into the tent. He put on the reel and threaded the line through the guides. He had to hold it from hand to hand as he threaded it or it would slip back through its own weight. It was a heavy, double-tapered fly line 
Nick had paid eight dollars for it a long time ago. It was made heavy to lift back in the air and come forward flat and heavy and straight to make it possible to cast a fly which has no weight. Nick opened the aluminum leader box. The leaders were coiled between the damp flannel pads. Nick had wet the pads at the water cooler on the train up to St. Ignace. In the damp pads, the gut leaders had softened, and Nick unrolled one and tied it by a loop at the end to the heavy fly line. He fastened a hook on the end of the leader. It was a small hook, very thin and springy. Nick took it from his hook book, sitting with the rod across his lap. He tested the knot and the spring of the rod by pulling the line taut. Ah, it was a good feeling. He was careful not to let the hook bite into his finger. He started down to the stream, holding his rod. The bottle of grasshoppers hung from his neck by a thong tied in half hitches around the neck of the bottle. His landing net hung by a hook from his belt. Over his shoulder was a long flower sack tied at each corner into an ear. The cord went over his shoulder. The sack flapped against his legs. <laughs> Nick felt awkward and professionally happy with all his equipment hanging from him. The grasshopper bottle swung against his chest. In his shirt, the breast pockets bulged against him with the lunch and his fly book. He stepped into the stream. Oh, it was a shock. His trousers clung tight to his legs. His shoes felt the gravel. The water was a rising cold shock. Rushing, the current sucked against his legs. Where he stepped in, the water was over his knees. He waded with the current. The gravel slid under his shoes. He looked down at the swirl of water below each leg and tipped up the bottle to get a grasshopper. The first grasshopper gave a jump in the neck of the bottle and went out into the water. He was sucked under in the whirl by Nick's right leg and came to the surface a little way downstream. He floated rapidly, kicking. In a quick circle, breaking the smooth surface of the water, he, oh, disappeared. A trout had taken him. Another hopper poked his head out of the bottle. His antennae wavered. He was getting his front legs out of the bottle to jump. Nick took him by the head. Oh, yeah. If you're fond of grasshoppers, please don't listen to the next 15 or 20 seconds. Nick took him by the head and held him while he threaded the slim hook under his chin, down through his thorax, and into the last segments of his abdomen. The grasshopper took hold of the hook with his front feet. Spitting tobacco juice on it, Nick dropped him into the water. Holding the rod in his right hand, he let out line against the pull of the grasshopper in the current. He stripped off line from the reel with his left hand and let it run free. He could see the hopper in the little waves of the current. It went 
out of sight. There was a tug on the line. Nick pulled against the taut line. Oh, it was his first strike. Holding the now living rod across the current, he brought in the line with his left hand. The rod bent in jerks. The trout pumping against the current. Nick knew it, it was a small one. He lifted the rod straight up in the air. It bowed with the pull. He saw the trout in the water, jerking with his head and body against the shifting tangent of the line in the stream. Nick took the line in his left hand and pulled the trout, thumping tiredly against the current, to the surface. His back was mottled with the clear water-over-gravel color, his side flashing in the sun. The rod under his right arm, Nick stooped, dipping his right hand into the current. He held the trout, never still, with his moist right hand while he unhooked the barb from his mouth and then dropped him right back into the stream. He hung unsteadily in the current, the fish, and then settled to the bottom beside a stone. Nick reached down his hand, down his hand to touch him, his arm to the elbow underwater. The trout was steady in the moving stream, resting on the gravel beside a stone. As Nick's fingers touched him, touched his smooth, cool, underwater feeling, <laughs> he was gone, <laughs> gone in a shadow across the bottom of the stream. Yeah, he's all right, Nick thought. He was only tired. He had wet his hand before he touched that trout, so he would not disturb the delicate mucus that covered him. If a trout was touched with a dry hand, a white fungus attacked the unprotected spot. Years before, when he had fished crowded streams with fly fishermen ahead of him and behind him, Nick had again and again come on dead trout, furry with white fungus, drifted against a rock or floating belly up in some pool. Nick did not like to fish with other men on the river. Unless they were of your party, they spoiled it. He wallowed down the stream, above his knees in the current, through the 50 yards of shallow water, above the pile of logs that crossed the stream. He did not rebate his hook and held it in his hand as he waded. He was certain he could catch small trout in the shallows, but he did not want them. There would be no big trout in the shallows this time of day. Now, the water deepened up his thighs sharply and coldly. Ahead was the smooth, dammed back flood of water above the logs. The water was smooth and dark. On the left, the lower edge of the meadow. On the right, the swamp. Nick leaned back against the current and took a hopper from the bottle. He threaded the hopper on the hook and spat on him for good luck. And then he pulled several yards of line from the reel and tossed the hopper out ahead onto the fast 
dark water. It floated down toward the logs, and then the weight of the line pulled the bait under the surface. Nick held the rod in his right hand, letting the line run out through his fingers. There was a long tug. Oh, Nick struck, and the rod came alive and dangerous, bent double the line, tightening, coming out of the water, tightening, all in a heavy, dangerous, steady pull. Nick felt the moment the leader would break if the line, if the strain increased, and then he let the line go. The reel ratcheted into a mechanical shriek as the line went out in a rush. Oh, too fast. Nick could not check it. The line rushing out and the reel note rising as the line ran out. The core of the reel showing his heart feeling stopped with excitement, leaning back against the current that mounted icily his thighs. Nick thumbed the reel hard with his left hand. Oh, it was awkward. Getting his thumb inside the fly reel frame. As he put on pressure, the line tightened into sudden hardness. And beyond the logs, a huge trout went high out of the water. As he jumped, Nick lowered the tip of the rod, but he felt as he dropped the tip to ease the strain. The moment when the strain was too great, the hardness too tight. Of course, the leader had broken. There was no mistaking the feeling when all spring left the line and it became dry and hard. And then it, it, it went slack. His mouth dry, his heart down. Nick reeled in. He had never seen so big a trout. There was a heaviness, a power not to be held. And then the bulk of him as he jumped. He looked as broad as a salmon. Nick's hand was shaky. He reeled in slowly. The thrill had been too much. He felt vaguely a little sick, as though it would be better to sit down. The leader had broken where the hook was tied to it. Nick took it in his hand. He thought of that trout somewhere on the bottom, holding himself steady over the gravel, far down below the light, under the logs. With the hook in his jaw, Nick knew the trout's teeth would cut through the smell of that hook. The hook would embed itself in his jaw. Oh, he bet that trout was angry. Anything that size would be angry. That was a trout. He had been solidly hooked, solid as a rock. He felt like a rock, too, before he started off. Oh, by God, he was a big one. By God, he was the biggest one he'd ever heard of. Nick climbed out onto the meadow and stood, water running down his trousers and out of his shoes. 
his shoes squelchy. He went over and sat on the logs. He did not want to rush his sensations any. He wriggled his toes in the water in his shoes and got out a cigarette from his breast pocket. He lit it and tossed the match into the fast water below the logs. A tiny trout rose at the match as it swung round in the fast current. Nick laughed. Yeah, he would finish the cigarette. He sat on the logs, smoking, drying in the sun, the sun warm on his back, the river shallow ahead, entering the woods, curving into the woods, shallows, light glittering, big water-smooth rocks, cedars along the bank, and white birches, the logs warm in the sun, smooth to sit on, without bark, gray to the touch. Hmm. Well, slowly, the feeling of disappointment left him. It went away slowly. The feeling of disappointment that came on sharply after the thrill that had made his shoulders ache. Ah, it was all right now. His rod lying out on the logs. Nick tied a new hook on the leader, pulling the gut tight until it grimped into itself in a hard knot. He baited up then picked up the rod and walked to the far end of the logs to get into the water where it was not too deep. Under and beyond the logs hmm, was a deep pool. Nick walked around the shallow shelf near the swamp shore until he came out on the shallow bed of the stream. On the left, where the meadow ended and the woods began, a great elm tree was uprooted. Gone over in a storm, it lay back into the woods, its roots clotted with dirt, grass growing in them, rising a solid bank beside the stream. The river cut to the edge of the uprooted tree. From where Nick stood, he could see deep channels like ruts cut in the shallow bed of the stream by the flow of the current. Pebbly where he stood, and pebbly and full of boulders beyond, where it curved near the tree roots. The bed of the stream was marly, and between the ruts of deep water, green weed fronds swung in the current. Nick swung the rod back over his shoulder and forward, and the line curving forward laid the grasshopper down on one of those deep channels in the weeds, and a trout struck, <laughs> and Nick hooked him, holding the rod far out toward the uprooted tree and sloshing backward in the current. Nick worked the trout, plunging the rod bending alive out of the danger of the weeds into the open river. Holding the rod, pumping alive against the current, Nick brought the trout in. He rushed, but he always came, the spring of the rod yielding to the rushes, sometimes jerking underwater, but always 
bringing him in. Nick eased downstream with the rushes. The rod above his head, he led the trout over the net and then lifted. Oh, that trout hung heavy in the net. Mottled trout, back and silver sides in the meshes. Nick unhooked him. Heavy sides, ooh, good to hold. Big undershot jaw. And slipped him heaving and big, sliding into the long sack that hung from his shoulders in the water. Nick spread the mouth of the sack against the current and it filled heavy with water. He held it up, the bottom in the stream, and the water poured out through the sides. Inside at the bottom was the big trout, alive in the water. Nick moved downstream, the sack out ahead of him, sunk heavy in the water, pulling from his shoulders. Ugh. It was getting hot, the sun hot on the back of his neck. Nick had one good trout. He did not care about getting many trout. Now the stream was shallow and wide. There were trees along both banks. The trees of the left bank made short shadows on the current in the forenoon sun, and Nick knew there were trout in each shadow. Now in the afternoon, after the sun had crossed toward the hills, the trout would be in the cool shadows on the other side of the stream. The very biggest ones would lie up close to the bank. You could always pick them up there on the black. When the sun was down, they all moved out into the current. And just when the sun made the water blinding in the glare before it went down, you were liable to strike a big trout anywhere in the current. It was almost impossible to fish then. The surface of the water was blinding as a mirror in the sun. Of course, you could fish upstream, but in a stream like the black, or this, you had to wallow against the current and in a deep place, and the water piled up on you. Now, it was no fun to fish upstream with this much current. Nick moved along through the shallow stretch, watching the banks for deep holes. A beech tree grew close beside the river so that the branches the branches hung down into the water. The stream went back in under the leaves. Ah, oh, there were always trout in a place like that. Nick did not care about fishing that hole. He was sure he would get hooked in the branches. It looked deep, though. He dropped the grasshopper so the current took it underwater back in under the overhanging branch. The line pulled hard and Nick struck. The trout threshed heavily, half out of the water, in the leaves and branches. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The line was caught. Nick pulled hard mm -hmm. and the trout was off. He reeled in and holding the hook in his hand, yeah, walked down the stream. Ahead, close to the left bank, was a big 
log, Nick saw it was hollow. Hmm. Pointing upriver, the current entered it smoothly. Only a little ripple spread each side of the log. The water was deepening. The top of the hollow log was gray and dry. It was partly in the shadow. Nick took the cork out of the grasshopper bottle, and a hopper clung to it. <laughs> he picked it off, hooked him, and tossed him out. He held the rod far out so that the hopper on the water moved into the current that was flowing into the hollow log. Nick lowered the rod, and the hopper floated in. Oh, there was a heavy strike. Nick swung the rod against the pull. It felt as though he were hooked into the log itself, except for the live feeling. He tried to force the fish out into the current. Uh, it came heavily. The line went slack, and Nick thought the trout was gone. Then he saw him very near in the current, shaking his head, trying to get the hook out. His mouth was clamped shut. He was fighting the hook in the clear flowing current. Looping in the line with his left hand, Nick swung the rod to make the line taut and tried to lead the trout toward the net. Uh, but he was gone, out of sight, the line pumping. Nick fought him against the current, letting him thump in the water against the spring of the rod. He shifted the rod to his left hand, worked the trout upstream, holding his weight, fighting on the rod, and then let him down into the net. He lifted him clear of the water, oh, a heavy half circle in the net. The net dripping, unhooked him and slid him into the sack. He spread the mouth of the sack and looked down in at the two big trout alive in the water. Through the deepening water, Nick waded over to the hollow log. He took the sack off over his head, the trout flopping as it came out of water, and hung it so the trout were deep in the water. Then he pulled himself up on the log and sat the water and sat the water from his trousers and boots running down into the stream. He laid his rod down, moved along, to the shady end of the log and took the sandwiches out of his pocket. He dipped the sandwiches in the cold water. The current carried away the crumbs. He ate the sandwiches and dipped his hat full of water to drink, the water running out through his hat just ahead of his drinking. Hmm. It was cool in the shade, sitting on the log. He took a cigarette out and struck a match to light it. The match sunk into the gray wood, making a tiny furrow. Nick leaned over the side of the log, found a hard place, and lit the match. He sat, smoking and watching the river. Ahead, the river narrowed 
and went into a swamp. The river became smooth and deep and the swamp looked solid with cedar trees, their trunks close together, their branches solid. It would not be possible to walk through a swamp like that. The branches grew so low. You would have to keep almost level with the ground to move at all. You could not crash through the branches. That must be why the animals that lived in swamps were built the way they were, Nick thought. He wished he'd brought something to read. He felt like reading. He did not feel like going on into the swamp. Mm -mm. He looked down the river. Oh, a big cedar slanted all the way across the stream. And beyond that, the river went into the swamp. Nick did not want to go in there now. He felt a reaction against deep wading, with the water deepening under his armpits to hook big trout in places impossible to land them. In the swamp, the banks were bare. The big cedars came together overhead. The sun did not come through except in little patches. In the fast, deep water, in the half-light, ugh, the fishing would be tragic. In the swamp, fishing was a tragic adventure. Nick did not want it. He did not want to go down the stream any farther today. He took out his knife, opened it, and stuck it in the log. And then he pulled up the sack, reached into it, and brought out one of the trout. Hmm. Fond of trout? Skip the next 30 seconds. Holding him near the tail, hard to hold, alive in his hand, he whacked him against the log. The trout quivered, rigid. Nick laid him on the log in the shade and broke the neck of the other fish the same way. He laid them side by side on the log. Oh, they were fine trout. Nick cleaned them, slitting them, from the vent to the tip of the jaw. All the insides and the gills and tongue came out in one piece. They were both males, long gray-white strips of milt, smooth and clean, all the insides clean and compact, coming out all together. Nick tossed the offal ashore for the minks to find. He washed the trout in the stream then he held them back up in the water. <laughs> they looked like live fish. Their color was not gone yet. He washed his hands and dried them on the log. Then he laid the trout on the sack spread out on the log and rolled them up in it, tied the bundle, and put it in the landing net. His knife was still standing, blade stuck in the log. He cleaned it on the wood and put it in his pocket. Nick stood up on the log, holding his rod, the landing net hanging heavy, and then stepped into the water and splashed ashore. He climbed the bank and cut up into the woods toward the high ground. He 
was going back to camp. He looked back. The river just showed through the trees. Ah, there were plenty of days coming when he could fish the swamp. Good night.